Hello and welcome to episode 100 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you've joined me today. I really wanted to do something special for episode 100, but I found myself putting it off because I couldn't really think of anything creative to do for all of you. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I've just got to do an episode. And if they've stuck with me through a hundred podcasts of low tech and just random bee ramblings, then that's okay. So I hope you all feel the same. I want to say that knowing all of you are out there and doing this podcast has made a whole nother level of enjoyment with my beekeeping. I find myself in addition to just the pure joy of hearing and seeing and smelling and touching all the things be. <laughs> Then it's also fun to think of things to share with you, to think of things that all of you might enjoy or might find handy. So today I am going to share with you how much I love my double screen board and talk a little bit more about that. But to celebrate the hundredth episode, I'm going to give away a copy of a beginner beekeepers book. It's called First Lessons in Beekeeping by Keith Delaplane. This is published by Dadent and I can't even recall how I came by this book. I believe I was looking at it and reading through it in order to perhaps suggest it to my bee club as a giveaway to new beekeepers, maybe a gift when they when they first join. The great thing about the book is that it has wonderful color photos and good color photos that will help the beginner recognize various things, and that is something I do like about the book. Per usual, the techniques and methods mentioned in the book are very personal and up to you, but if you are a complete beginner, I believe it would be very handy, and I'll be giving it away to one of the per- people who leave a comment on the patron post. Now, this Patreon post will be open to everyone so that you can leave a comment. So it's open to all listeners, not just patrons. Leave a comment and then we'll do some kind of drawing and give this book away. If this is the part you're interested in, then please say so in your comment. If you're not a member on Patreon, please be sure to check back on the post in a week or so to see if you were selected as the winner. The second thing I'm going to give away, so that was for the beginners. For the more experienced beekeepers, I'm going to give away a subscription to Bee Culture magazine. I'm starting with Bee Culture. Later on in the summer, I will give away a subscription to American Bee Journal because both of these journals have given me permission to read some of their older articles to you. And next podcast, I am going to read an article to you, and it's going to be Bob Benny's article in Bee Culture on how they use the double screen board. So we'll start this giveaway with a subscription to Bee Culture. If you are in the U.S., then I'm happy to give you either the digital or the paper subscription, whichever you prefer. If you are not in the U.S., then I will have to limit that to a digital subscription because it is hard to get those physical magazines overseas. So that's our little celebration for the 100th episode of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. Here in Western North Carolina, spring has finally made its way up the mountains, even all the way to 3,000 feet. 
The red buds are blooming. The dogwoods are blooming. We have dandelions, which is wonderful. I try to get all my friends in love with dandelions. And a lot of times, if you tell friends and family how important they are to bees at this time of year, then they will allow more of them to live in their yards. I ha- I love to drive by a yard that's just covered with dandelions. I know this is heresy to people who love a perfectly manicured lawn, but I am not a fan of the manicured lawn because I see it as a a big absence of things for pollinators. When you think about some of the challenges that bees face in the world today, lack of forage is a big one. And when you add in the climate variability that we have more of now, the back and forth, the unreliable spring and unreliable winter, it kind of alternates, which is very confusing to the, the plants and creatures and the bees. I believe at my farm up until just now, I feel like we have been in a nectar dearth because every time I would check on the bees, they were holding on and looking okay, but just no excess nectar to amount to anything stored around the brood nest. And so one of the things I've been doing is some trickle feeding, just little light feeding of one-to-one syrup. That's one-to-one sugar, one part sugar to one part water. And as a friend asked me the other day, yes, that can be by weight or volume. It's pretty ballpark. But generally, you use one-to-one in the spring or any time that you want the queen to keep laying. So the one-to-one syrup is to encourage the bees to keep building the brood nest. And then the two-to-one syrup that you feed in the fall in particular, that is more concentrated so that they can put on weight in the fall. So anyway, I have been having to do some some feeding. I finally got little jar feeders and everything set up on every single hive because I noticed the ones I had been feeding because they were too light on their honey and I was actually worried about their health and survival. I noticed they looked much better than the ones that even though they still had some weight that they hadn't had any feed and because of what was going on in the weather, they hadn't had enough nectar to amount to anything. Finally, I got everybody set up where I can use either a mason jar feeder or one of the rapid feeders, which is not so rapid because I don't, I don't give them a ton of one-to-one because you don't want them filling up a bunch of space and trying to dry that out or store it. You want them to eat it and to use it to feed baby bees, to build the brood nest so that you have a good population once your honey flow comes on. Here in the mountains, hopefully, that will be locust and tulip poplar. Locust is that light, just delicious, we call it champagne honey. And then the tulip poplar is the darkest honey we have. And it is so delicious. It is so rich and buttery. And if we're lucky, we'll get a little of each of those. The tulip poplar seem to be having some type of problem in our area that the nectar, we haven't had as much tulip poplar flow as usual. And because I'm in an area that is primarily wooded, um, I don't have a ton of locust. Whichever one comes first, I sure hope there will be some good flow coming up here at the farm. In the yard that I have that's in a more open area with fields, they seem to be doing much better. They're not in a true flow yet, but they are getting enough to be building up beautifully. I don't do a lot of stimulative feeding. That's something a lot of commercial beekeepers do. Essentially, if they are either 
going to make bees or going to make honey. It's very challenging to do both, but if you are going to do either one of those, then the commercial producers, they tend to feed a lot of sugar water in the spring, and that has two effects, as best I can tell. One is Obviously, it builds up the bees. If they have a steady flow of syrup from the beekeeper, then they keep steadily building that brood nest because you want a large population if you're a honey producer. And you want that population to peak right as your flow is coming on. If they peak too early, then they're probably going to swarm as soon as the flow comes on. But the other effect of the stimulative feeding that a lot of the commercial producers do is that essentially they fill up the brood nest area with all the food they can handle. So when the flow comes on and you put empty supers full of comb on top, then all the the new nectar coming in from actual natural honey resources go tend to go into that super or those supers. So that's something if you don't do that type of stimulative feeding, there is a much lower and slower rate of honey accumulation. And I find that to be that works well for me because I don't I don't want them filling up their brood box so that they're going to want to swarm and it is okay with me since I'm not making my living through honey to just let them build up more naturally, but I am a big believer in early, not too early, <laughs> but uh, trickle feeding before the flow just to make sure that they're not under a lot of nutritional stress just as they are trying to build up their spring population. That stress of not having enough uh, nectar incoming and no syrup provided by the beekeeper can cause any latent diseases that your bees might have to show their ugly heads. A few years ago, when I had trouble with European fowl brood, now that's European fowl brood, which is not American fowl brood. American fowl brood is the one uh, kind of, you know, they burn the hives in some places. They burn the hives or either have to irradiate the hives to get rid of it. But European fowl brood, it's nasty, but it's not as bad as American fowl brood. But anyway, the bee inspector, when I had that trouble, the first thing he said was feed them. And I started that in earlier episodes, I went through all the things that I went through to get them the, to get them going again. But my thought since then has been, why let them get to the, the stress point that disease is going to start showing up when if I give them a little thin syrup, just a small amount every day, if it's a big hive, I might give them a quart. If it's a little hive, you know, they might get half a quart just to keep them building, but also prevent stress. I feel like they got a good amount of natural pollen. I personally try not to supplement pollen if I see a good amount of pollen coming in because I believe that the natural pollen is usually higher quality than the pollen substitutes. And again, I I want my bees to be in sync with their environment and I want to be able to see that, see which lines of bees are the most in sync with this particular environment by being fairly cautious, stimulative feeding in the sense of trying to fill up a lot of space, but to just do the trickle feeding in hopes of lessening any stress they might be under. The other thing that is just about now become time to do in my yard here at the farm is to reverse some boxes. Now, reversing is a a tricky thing. If you have deep brood boxes, like if you have two of those, then to be honest, I'm not sure how much I would recommend reversing the boxes. And by reversing beginners, that's just 
So when they come out of winter, all the bees tend to be in the very top box of the stack, and they've got a lot of empty drawn comb below. And so the technique of reversing is you put whichever box is full of the brood nest down on the bottom board, and then you reverse or you set the boxes of drawn comb above them that you want them to grow up into. Because in in a vertical hive, bees definitely, they tend to want to move up all the time. They do, to some extent, they will begin to to grow downward because you think about it, that is how in a natural hive, like in a tree, that is how they would do. But also remember in a tree, they swarm a lot, which is good for their health. But in a apiary, it's a mixed bag. Reversing, because I use the medium boxes, I have found reversing to be very handy because I'm not putting like a giant deep box of drawn comb above their head so that they have all that space to manage. More importantly, I don't want the heat of the brood nest to go up into some giant box above their head if it's still cold at night and it's at least chilly at night here. But with the medium boxes, the medium eight frames, it is pretty easy if I overwinter in a stack of three eight frame medium boxes, for example, then many times the brood nest is in the top two boxes. So I will place those top two boxes without rearranging it. I really try to keep that brood nest intact. I will put it on the bottom board and then I will put that very bottom box that is usually empty in early spring. I will put it over their head in mid-spring and that gives them more space. That gives them more space to expand the brood nest, slows down any urge to swarm and also buys me time to decide what I want to do with that hive. Do I want to split them? Do I want to carefully build them up and manage them for a honey hive or some combination of both. But that bottom box in your stack by the spring, by the early spring, is probably empty and it's probably full of drawn comb. Now, one thing I do when I reverse that box is I take out at least two of the darkest comb in that box and replace it with foundation. It's also handy because when I see them drawing out white comb, when you see them drawing out white honeycomb for the first time in the spring, then probably your flow is starting and that's a good visual indication that it's starting and that's your opportunity, which doesn't last all summer. So it's a really special time in that spring flow to get more clean, nice foundation drawn out. So culling a couple of frames of old dark comb is a good way to start. So let me tell you this tale about how I used my double screen board recently. I've said before, I use double screen boards for all manner of things. Now the ones I happen to have, just because I bought a handful of them, I believe I bought them from Brushy Mountain. Rest in peace, Brushy Mountain. We miss you. And they are true snail grove board. Now a snail grove board is a double screen board with some extra features. The basic of it, of any double screen board, is either a board or a shim of some kind, like just the rim, and it will have B hardware cloth on both the top of that surface and the bottom of that surface. It is very important that those screens be separated enough that the bees cannot touch tongues through the wire. So that's why it's double. And that's why the thickness of the double screen board is important because you want to make sure that those bees can't touch. And that is to keep them from agitating each other if if there's a queen in the top and a queen in the bottom. And also it's to keep them from sharing queen pheromone via touching each other. So the thickness 
between those screens, that's important. But past that, there's a lot of different designs. They all pretty much work the same way. The other difference between a Snell Grove board and a, a just plain double screen board, which you'll call a, a swarm board, a split board, because there's techniques to use to prevent swarms and a techniques to use to make splits, to make vertical splits. So if you look at the apiarist, for example, the apiarist uh, blog that I often mention, he uses, I believe he calls it a swarm board, but the, the, it's, it's wood on most of the board and it's a fairly thick board. I can't remember if it has rim, a rim around the edge or not. It's got a hole cut in the middle, maybe a little bit bigger than the hole in an inner cover. And then, of course, it has screen on both sides. With his, they're mostly solid, except for that section in the middle. The kind I have, which are Snellgrove boards, are completely open. They're they're completely screen. It's just screen on a shim. But it also has the extra little feature that it has six doors. On mine, it has two doors on three sides. So the back doesn't have a door, but on the sides and the front, there are two doors. The doors on top would allow the bees to go in that door and access the box above it. The door on the bottom, on the other hand, if you open that one instead, will allow the bees to come in and go to the box below. And that little feature is very important in the Snell Grove method of swarm prevention, which I have never used. It is very complicated to my mind and kind of fiddly and time sensitive and all those. So I've never had that much of a need for the Snell Grove technique. But the board is invaluable in my yard. I looked on Honeybee Sweet, that's S-U-I-T-E on the end, Honeybee Sweet, which is Rusty, the author, and she had a post on double screen boards or snail grove boards, and she listed the various things that they could be used for. Several of them, I'd never used them for that, but I have used them as a makeshift moving cover. So to use that board on top of the hive, like I also have single screen, um, basically a ventilated top cover is what they're considered. And so I've used those, but when I didn't have one of those, I only have about two of those, I would use the double screen board because it's just screen. You take off the inner and outer cover, put that screen on there. The bees can't get out, but they have full airflow going out the top to release the heat. So if you have to move bees, some type of screen board across the entire top is a technique to keep them from overheating, which is very easy to do. And then, of course, there is the actual snow growth swarm prevention method. Then I've used it as makeshift bottom boards, which I didn't when I didn't have enough bottom boards. Or if I had bottom boards, but I didn't have a good entrance reducer, I could use the double screen board with just the door open a little tiny bit to make a small entrance and use it as a makeshift bottom board. One thing I mentioned earlier this year was I used the double screen boards to overwinter two hives together in one step. And what I would do there is the bigger hive was on the bottom. Their entrance was normal. And then I put a shim filled with wood shavings over their inner cover. I had some screen to keep the wood shavings from falling down in on them. They had a shim of, of wood shavings. And then the double screen board above the double screen board was another nuke. These were three very tiny nukes that were not winter survivable size. They were young, they were healthy, but they were just too small. So I thought I'd experiment with overwintering these tiny nukes. It did great. They all three came through wonderful because they had the heat rising up from that 
hive below, so they had a warm floor. Shim full of wood shavings, to my mind, broke the con- any extra moisture from wafting all the way up to the little bees on top. So essentially the the bottom hive would have a warm attic and then the top hive would have the warm floor, the rising heat, and then insulation on top so they stayed warm as well. And because on the Snowgrove board I have three sides I could choose where to open the entrance, I had them coming out of the side of the box and that way their entrances were not the same, their entrance was not the same direction as the bees below, which were just the standard bottom board. I have used the double screen board when I just didn't have enough top and bottom boards. And let's say I had two nukes. This was before I got a big stash of of nuke boxes. I would have two eight frame medium boxes. Each one would have a young nuke in it, but I just didn't have enough top and bottom covers. And there too, I have used a two stack with the double screen board between them. They share the heat, which is nice in the earlier spring, but then they also, because they can't touch tongues, then they don't fight or fuss among themselves. And then I would have their entrances open to different directions. And that is a way that you can actually hive two colonies on one stand. And not that I would ever suggest that anyone break any rules, but I have heard of people that are in situations where they're only allowed X amount of hives, like with a homeowner's association or a city rule. And this messes up using nukes because they want to make a couple of nukes. But if they did that, they would go over the hive count. So I'm just saying that I've heard that the double screen boards can be used to make a multi-nuke stack, two or more, and it only takes up one hive stand, and to anybody who's counting, it looks like one hive. So I'll just leave that there. Handy that way too. Now it is a pain in the butt when you go to inspect the hive hive or the nuke below because you have to unstack everybody, and in the meantime, they're flying around and they're like, where the heck did our house go? And so they're not real happy with you. But for a quick inspection, it's not too bad. The overwintered nukes on top of the double screen board for the winter also complicated feeding the hive below. But I did have that shim. And so a couple times in the winter, I would set the upper nuke off and get in that shim and I would put them a sandwich container full of the winter patty, put that in. And so they had that little extra treat in the winter, just like everybody else in the apiary. I did not want them to feel left out. And then on the upper nuke, they ran out of food. You know, they worked their way through the food that was in their box pretty quickly. So I had to keep little winter patties on them as well. So as weird and obscure as the Snellgrove board is, and when I first bought a few, you know, I was like, I don't know, this might have been a mistake, but I have used them. I mean, I've used them. Some of them are starting to fall apart. I've used them so much. And the wonderful beekeeper, Bob Binney, who happens to be the speaker for the Tocane Beekeeper Club this week, very excited about that. On his YouTube channel, he uses double screen boards to make splits. And it, it's a super easy method uh, if you have, especially if you have access to mated queens or queen cells. Now, if you ha- are working with queen cells, then that queen is going to need to go out and mate in, you know, where you are. So you want to make sure that when she goes out to mate, there are going to be plenty of drones and plenty of good flying weather. So that's just a little disclaimer on that. But the method that he uses to make splits, and there's a YouTube video, I'll share the link, is basically they pull several frames of capped brood and the clinging bees, add some more shakes in the top 
compartment, which is above the double screen board, which it will get the heat from the colony below, which is handy because you're doing this in the spring. So essentially you make up a little mini nuke on top of the hive. And then because it's a double screen board, you can introduce either a caged queen or a queen cell to that mini nuke. Now, the great thing about introducing a caged queen that way is, okay, think about it. You have the hive, you've pulled out some frames of brood and replaced those with frames of comb or foundation, whichever the case might be. And now you've set up this little penthouse on top with essentially the ingredients of any type of a split, you know, the frames of nectar and pollen, frames of captain emerging brood, and all the clinging bees that are nurse bees will stay in the penthouse. All the forager bees are going to go out the penthouse door and go back home to the main hive entrance. So what that leaves is a box stocked with just nurse bees, and they are going to be very welcoming to a caged queen. This is a great method if you have a, if you buy a caged queen that's very special and you really want to make sure that they don't kill her, then by doing this, you are able to introduce her into a little nuke box with just nurse bees and emerging brood who will instantly think they she is mama, and you really lower the odds on a hive killing a caged queen, and that's really important, particularly if she's a special one. And then at whatever point you need to, you can set this little nuke either off the stack which again will limit the population because since then, since since all that happened, you have had some of the nurse bees graduate to foraging. And of course, they will try to go back to wherever the old entrance was. So the best case scenario in that is to take your little nuke off in the late evening, early morning or night with a closed door and move it to an out yard at least three miles away. I have moved him two miles away and not had any problem, but if you want to be with flyback, but if you want to be extra sure, three miles is the official number from which bees will not return to their original home. So that is one of his main techniques for making nukes in the spring from the looks of his YouTube video. And finally, I want to tell you how I used it recently. I had made a nucleus split with the recipe that I posted for the patrons. Uh, patrons, if you haven't seen it yet, I've posted the recipe. It's a printable on patreon.com slash fiveapple. And you can print that out if you want to make nucleus splits the way that I do them, which is very similar to the method the apiarist uses. But anyway, that bonus is there for the patrons. And we'll just pause there. This podcast is made possible by the patrons at patreon.com slash fiveapple. I could not do this without their support and their encouragement. If you would like to join to have some bonus posts over there, I would be so happy to welcome you. So what happened in my bee yard is I had made the nucleus split. I had set the queen, the old queen, with a support staff in a little nucleus colony on the other side of the apiary. And then I had left the old stack in the same place with the plan that I was going to let them make queen cells on the frames. Then on day 10 after the split, I was going to go back in there. Sorry if you hear the dog sneezing in the background. <laughs> on day 10 after the split, I was going to go back in and pull frames with queen cells on them and set them up in a queen castle with staff and stores and then let the original hive keep one cell and hopefully requeen itself. I had this grand plan, but a couple things went wrong. One was that I looked in the retirement nuke the next day and I was not satisfied with the number of bees that had stayed in there with her, even though I had done an extra couple of shakes of bees when I made the split and they were just packed in there that first day. I guess 
I either picked the wrong frames or maybe this hive didn't have as many nurse bees to spare as I thought they did. But anyway, a lot of those bees went back to the original hive and I was not pleased when I looked in there and saw the queen with just not enough staff. And even though there would be enough staff to take care of her if there was not much else in the box, but I had put a couple of frames of Captain Emerging Brood in with them and I did not want to lose those entire frames of brood due to getting too chilly. And that was one of the complications is at that time we were going to have three nights in a row where we were going to have a hard frost. And that could easily stress that little nuke. It could kill that brood. There wasn't wasn't even enough of staff in that nuke to tote the dead brood out. So I definitely didn't want that to happen. So I was, I closed them back up and I was walking around the farm thinking about how exactly to handle this. I didn't want to disturb the original hive because they were building the queen cells. But then I decided to switch horses in midstream and I believe it worked. So what I did is I made the decision because this is the other compounding factor. And that is I had realized that the day that I was due to pull those frames with capped ripe queen cells, so that's day 10 after the split, and place them in mating nukes or queen castle, that was going to be a terrible day for bee work because of other commitments I have. And I really try before I make a split to look at my calendar 10 days out to make sure I'm going to have the time and the energy and the space to give that split some time, especially if I'm doing setting up multiple mating nukes. So what I did the next day, but before that frost, was I went back in to the original hive. I pulled every frame that had a queen cell on it. Oh, this kind of broke my heart because this thing I was about to do was going to mean that only one of those would survive. I knocked down some of the scrawnier looking queen cells just as a safety precaution, but still there were at least three frames with good, beautiful queen cells on them. I put all of those in one box and I set it aside, obviously working very carefully, but still they were not in that delicate day seven through nine after the split or after the graft, which is a delicate time that you don't want to jostle them at all because the queen is forming her wing buds during day seven through nine post graft or post split. So anyway, I put the frames and the clinging bees with the queen cells in a box. Then I just picked and chose frames that had plenty of food, plenty of pollen on them. By the way, they were, they were capped by this time. I may have messed up on telling you the timing of this thing, but they, they were capped. I believe it was like on about day five and it may have even been day six. But so now those frames with queen cells are all in one box. And what this meant was the colony that was still on that original stand, now they didn't have a queen and they did not have any queen cells. So what I was going to do is I was going to recombine the retirement nuke with her old colony, but without any queen cells in her compartment. Now I did this carefully because I wanted to make sure that they didn't jump on her just in the chance that they had become attached to those queen cells and that they no longer recognized her. But when I even held the frame with her near the hive, just on the edge to kind of see how they would act, the moment they caught a whiff of her, all the little bees came to the top and started fanning, 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 fanning. So they recognized her. And so I reintroduced her just by putting her frame and her little nuke frames back in the original hive. So they are exactly back where she started from with the same entrance in the original place. But I put her on the bottom gave her a little extra space in the form of real space, that is drawn comb, because I wanted her to have a place to lay so that she could have 
plenty of room to lay because I would not be able to open that hive and mess with them because during that sensitive developmental time because of those cells on top. So I set her up to do about a week down there. Then I put the double screen board on top. So now now the two groups of the same colony are separated and I set the box that had the queen cells gently on top of the double screen board, provided them plenty of stores and opened their side door. So up there, anybody that any of the forager bees that accidentally got transferred, of course, they would make their way back down to the bottom because those cells were centered right in the the center of the space and they did have plenty of covering nurse bees. And then they had just extra foundation on either side of them to kind of cozy them into the middle and they had plenty of nectar and pollen. So they had everything they needed to finish incubating those cells. And I say incubating because basically their only job would be to keep those cells warm because all the feeding of those cells was done. Anytime there's feeding of queen cells, you want a big, robust population to be feeding and tending them while they are open because there is nothing hungrier than a baby queen and they eat like tiny racehorses. So you you want the big, burly part of your split to be the part that feeds the queen cells, in my opinion. But I wasn't worried about that because they were capped. And once they're capped, there's no more feeding that needs to be done. So all those little bees up there had to do with there had to be enough of them, plenty of them to keep her warm and to be her mating entourage that kind of help with her mating flight preparation and receiving her back. Now, why did I do this? Because I wasn't going to be available to separate those frames with the queen cells. If I had left them in that original hive when they emerged, because of the size of that colony, they would be less likely to fight it out to one and then that one go off on her mating flight. No, what they'd be more likely to do is start casting virgin swarms. And that's what I did not want to do. Basically, I had to get those queen cells separated from the bulk of the flying population. And in moving them to the top, I reduced their their population. They were reduced down to just nurse bees because the entrance faced a different direction. So the foragers went home. What that effectively did is it pretty much guarantees that the first virgin to emerge will go around and kill all her sisters. That cannot be guaranteed if there is enough population to throw a swarm or two. But in a tiny population, they're not going to attempt to throw a swarm if the population is small enough. And so you can have several queen cells in there and you're not going to get a swarm. Now, for me, this whole procedure, what it accomplished was the following. It made sure that my prized queen was not going to be under stress by being too cold with that unexpected cold weather coming just after I had made a nucleus split and combined with that unfortunate lack of enough nurse bees in there with her. Now, if I had been intent and needed to keep her in that nuke, what I would have done is just instead of doing this whole procedure, I would have just gone into the old hive and very carefully with frames that did not have queen cells on them, I would shake extra bees into that nuke enough to take care of things. But the combination was just too much for me that she was really special. I did not want her to be cold or stressed and I was not going to be able to divide up those cells. So I needed to use a method that makes sure as sure as one can be with anything in bees that they do not cast virgin swarms. So I know that's kind of a convoluted tale, but that's yet another way you can use 
a snail grove board or a split board, and that is to reduce the population tending capped queen cells so that they are unlikely to throw virgin swarms. So there. And I just love my double screen board more than ever. In upcoming weeks, as a Patreon bonus for the patrons, I will post my recipe for the vertical split, which is a split technique where they always stay on the same stand. So you can make a split without needing an additional space or an additional stand. Again, my method is very similar to what the apiarist does, and that's where I originally learned it over the years. I've tweaked it a little bit, and I will post my recipe for that for the patrons because I appreciate them so very much. So next time I'm going to do the reading uh, in honor of Bob Benny's visit to Yancey County. I will do the reading of his article on double screen boards that was in B Culture of, I think it was 2019. If you happen to have a digital subscription, you can go and read it now. So I'm going to wrap this up. Please go to this episode post at patreon.com slash fiveapple and make a comment. Which would you like to have? The first lesson in beekeeping by Keith Delaplane, or would you like to have the subscription to Bee Culture Magazine? Those are the prizes I'm giving away to celebrate this 100th episode of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. Again, it's open to everyone. That post will be public, but I would heartily welcome you to join us if you feel like it. And if you're not in a position to do that right now, but you still want to support the show, then I would humbly ask you to leave good ratings, <laughs> five-star ratings on Apple Podcast, because that is how Apple decides whether to show this podcast to people searching for the term beekeeping. So your reviews there really mean a difference. And your words, the, the stars make a difference to the algorithm, but your words make a big difference to my internal algorithm in that I'm so appreciative of those reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all. Have a wonderful week. And believe it or not, I'm going to be back before the end of the month with that article from Bob Benny. Take care. Hope you're enjoying your bees so much. And I'll talk to you soon.